Thin Air is an independently produced podcast created by Daniel Calderon and Jordan Sims. For more information about us, check out our website at thinairpodcast.com. There you'll find detailed blogs on the cases we cover, our contact information, social media, donation pages, and much, much more. That is thinairpodcast.com. We'd also greatly appreciate if you could take a few moments and rate and review us on iTunes. This will help our podcast become visible to an even wider audience. This episode of Thin Air is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. Get $50 off any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash thinair and enter promo code thinair. The case I'm about to cover is complicated, a lot more complicated than it appears. On the outset, the answer to the case seems obvious. A man goes to San Francisco to collect a bounty of drugs for his medical marijuana business and disappears. Occam's razor, the idea that the answer with the simplest explanation is the best, would say, it was a drug deal gone wrong. However, if there's one thing I've learned over the past 19 episodes of producing this podcast, it's that when it comes to unsolved missing persons cases, the simplest explanations are by no means the most correct. The last reported sighting of Cameron Remmer was the evening of October 6, 2011. He had traveled to San Francisco to buy between $30,000 and $40,000 worth of drugs and paraphernalia. The night he disappeared, he had just returned to the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco, where he had stayed the previous night but had checked out from earlier that morning. He went to the Tonga Bar, located inside the hotel, and according to various reports, Cameron was described as, quote, bothering some of the patrons, and hotel security asked him to leave around 11 p.m. After leaving the Fairmont that night, Cameron has never been heard or seen from again. In order to unravel the disappearance of Cameron Rimmer, we need to go back to his childhood, to his birth even, to that very hospital room in Carlsbad, an oceanside town in Southern California. I had him as a C-section. He was um, our surprise baby. Um, unfortunately, at the time, I didn't realize it, but his dad was having an affair the whole time. And so I couldn't understand why he didn't want to, wasn't as excited about the baby and all that. So, um, but we were both single parents, and it was, I worked a lot of jobs. And That's Valerie, Cameron's mother, who I spoke with on multiple occasions over the course of many weeks as I researched Cameron's disappearance. Valerie, like any mother, is desperate for answers about what happened to her son. I could hear it when she speaks to me, how she rushes through each answer, just hoping to get out as much information as she can. I get the feeling that not a lot of people have ever really taken the time to listen to her about the disappearance of her son, Cameron, especially people interested in trying to find out what happened. I feel guilty about that. And, and Cameron, you know, was dad, I wanted his dad involved in his life. And even though his dad and I don't get along, they were back and forth. So he had, you know, he had a divorced family kind of thing to deal with, but brothers and sisters that never thought of him as a half-brother, uh, you know, Valerie explained much more about Cameron's home life growing up, 
Her divorce with Cameron's father, his siblings, her feelings of guilt that she had to take a job to make ends meet and couldn't spend more time with Cameron when he was a baby. His childhood friend Leah describes Cameron akin to the all-American boy trope. Tall, strong, good-looking, blonde hair, blue eyes, a football player, and ladies' man. Even the way Leah met Cameron is something out of an episode of Life Goes On or Friday Night Lights or maybe even a mix between the two. I actually met him, we were in second grade and he played Pop Warner football and I was a cheerleader for his team. And my mom was a cheer coach and his dad was the, the football coach. So that's how we first met. He was definitely, he's always been athletic. He played football when he was younger and basketball, skateboarded, surfed, always in the gym, just very active, very hype, like had a lot, always had a lot of energy. So he definitely needed somewhere to put that energy. He was always doing some kind of physical activity. For a long time, that physical outlet was football. He even met Leah playing in a youth league known as Pop Warner a nonprofit organization that provides football programs to young adults ranging from 5 to 16. However, as Cameron played more games, he had more head injuries, including concussions. When a concussion occurs, a part of the brain referred to as white matter gets damaged, and it's this matter that helps information pass between different parts of the brain. One article I read described concussions as playing, quote, Russian roulette with your brain meaning the more times you have a brain injury, the more likely you are to suffer from more severe consequences in the future. Teenage brains tend to be even more susceptible to these side effects because they aren't fully developed. In addition to playing football, Cameron also played baseball, which it turns out has a concussion problem of its own. It was during a game when Cameron was 11 that he had one of his worst concussions. He was playing baseball. A guy threw a baseball, or hit a baseball, and it hit him in the head. And it hit him in the head so hard that it knocked him out for over 30 minutes. They life-flighted Cameron to Children's Hospital. And so I called Children's Hospital. They told me five doctors were with him now and to come down and get down there. And so Bill was supposed to have him rest for a month and not play sports and then Bill said Cameron's playing and Cameron goes mom I'm going to play football on Saturday and I go no the doctor said you're not supposed to play for a month and he says no mom I'm okay I'm okay so we went to Temecula it was like 113 degree heat and Bill was coaching and Bill never pulled him from the game offense or defense he played him the whole game and I was furious Bill is Cameron's dad. He's somewhat of a mysterious figure throughout this story, popping in and out at random times, never really talking to anyone, police or media, about the disappearance of his son. I'm not sure whether to take this as the coping strategy of a man with a tough exterior or something more suspicious. It's hard to describe Bill and explain Bill, but like, he wants to be a friend. He doesn't, he doesn't like to be like dad. He, he wants to be a buddy or a pal or something like that. He just can't deal with things. So he was just in denial about the fact that Cameron needs help? He was in denial. He was in denial. 
At any rate, all of these concussions began to take a toll on Cameron, physically and mentally. He was good in school. He was very smart. And then around high school, after the one, the football head injury, his behavior changed. So I had them do a bunch of series of tests on him, um, which they did, did a numerous amount of testing. They couldn't find anything. They said he's, everything appears to be okay and normal. And This lack of official diagnosis for Cameron's head injuries isn't unusual either, especially for the late 80s when Valerie would have been taking Cameron to see the doctor. From the research I read, upwards of 47% of teenage football players experience at least one concussion per season, and 35% reported having multiple concussions each season. But this number doesn't do any justice to the fact that over 85% of concussions go completely undiagnosed. It's also important to keep in mind that concussions are mild brain injuries and their side effects are witnessed gradually over a long period of time. In a study published in Radiology magazine, researchers found that kids who showed no signs of a concussion after getting hit in the head will still go on to develop mental illnesses like depression and bipolar disorder, which are common side effects of concussions. I went to open house at the high school and all of his teachers were glowing and everything except one teacher. And it, it was uh, his Spanish teacher and his Spanish teacher was afraid of him. And so I talked to Cameron and I said, what's going on? Why is your teacher afraid of you? I'm going to interject here because I just discovered a blog written by Cameron literally moments ago as I was writing this script. I've gone back and inserted his commentary into my original writing because I thought it was important for us to hear Cameron's side of these events in his own words. There's a lot to cover in these blogs and they will be addressed again in the next episode, but I bring them up now because of the incident his mother just spoke of, the one with the Spanish teacher being afraid of him at school. This is something Cameron writes about in detail. Just a warning, there is strong language in the next segment. So I had this fat bitch as a Spanish teacher. This lady just seemed to have it out for me. So one day I told her I couldn't wait to get my driver's license so I could fucking run her fat ass over. Can you imagine I talked my way out of that one? I was dead serious. I wanted to kill the bitch. Now my relationship started getting rocky during the second half of the year. Plus, my dad just had a bunch of cancer cut out of his back, so life turned upside down and became whack. I didn't know how to deal with it all, I just got dumped like a chump. It's clear from this small excerpt that, as Cameron grew up, the brain injuries he had acquired as a kid began to create violent and even sometimes dangerous behaviors. Behaviors like extreme rage and extreme depression and mania. Although he was performing fairly well in high school, he became disillusioned by sports and wanted to dedicate himself full-time to chasing girls. Again, here's Cameron in his own words. It is now my junior year in high school and I'm kind of getting over the whole football scene, plus realizing I'm not going to be a big-time athlete. Time to face reality, I'm 5'10 and a buck 60, and it isn't like I have wheels or anything. So my dickhead coach was giving me shit at practice, and I pretty much told him to fuck off and threw my helmet off and walked out during the middle of practice. That same day was the first time I smoked pot. I had a stash of pot, but didn't burn. 
I headed to my dad's house, grabbed the weed, and smoked with my friends after they had finished practice. That was the day I started heading down the wrong path. My dad always said, if you play sports, it keeps you out of trouble, and man, was he right. The next day, my head coach asked if I wanted to come back, and I told him I think I might just watch this game from the stands. I had way more fun chasing girls and drinking at the game than I had playing. The next week came and my answer was final. I wasn't coming back. Cameron goes on about how his life changed from focusing on sports and school to women and drugs. How he began experimenting with other substances and eventually buying, selling, and distributing various narcotics during the entirety of high school. Cameron explains. Things were going good in every aspect of my life. My grades were good and I seemed like your typical senior in high school. Man, did I have everyone close to me fooled. I literally was living the Jekyll and Hyde lifestyle. Graduation day couldn't have come quick enough. I was so ready to get the fuck out of Carlsbad and have my own spot in Isla Vista. The day had finally come, it was graduation, and I had been seeing this girl on the sly from pretty much everyone just so I wouldn't have to deal with the typical high school bullshit and rumors. She kissed me in front of everybody, and that day, I guess, we became official. After high school, Cameron hoped to move to Isla Vista, to go to community college, to chase the dream, whatever that meant to him. He never really achieved that dream, though, participating instead in a string of bad decisions, probably brought on by the mixture of drugs and mental illness. The next decade of his life would be filled with sudden outbursts of anger resulting in either violence, rejection, or isolation, which only deepened Cameron's depression. All of this behavior culminated one night in 2001 when Cameron was only 19 in Santa Barbara, California. I had this horrible, horrible nightmare that Cameron had killed someone. I, I woke up shaking. I told Davey, something horrible has happened. Something really bad has happened. The phone rang, and it was the Santa Barbara Police Department, and they had arrested Cameron. They tried him for a hate crime, and he spent jail, jail time in uh, the Santa Barbara jail. He was on the stage, and he, he, he said the word, San... Sorry, I hate that word. Cameron was really drunk, they said. And they came at him at the stage, and so Cameron swung this microphone around and hit somebody in the head, and they didn't file charges, but Cameron ran from the police, and the police did a number on him. He was pretty beaten up and uh, put in jail. Cameron details the events of this night in a post on his blog titled Downward Spiral. It was the evening of February 2nd, the night of the Roy Jones Jr. fight. Well... After drinking and watching the fight, we stopped by my old apartment to grab a drink. My fish tank was still there and I ate a fish. People thought I was nuts, more like I just didn't give a fuck. Then we slammed down some tequila. Now we headed off to Mason and Flynn's pad just down the street. I was smashed and I was heated, so I pushed my way up the stairs. So many people, yet so many glares. I was in the wrong, but the line was way too long. Why should I wait to get to my friend's party when these other people know them hardly? 
So I shoved this kid and called him names. No one tried to fight. No more words needed to be said. I got my beer and filled it up. Now some big white comes talking shit. I could only take it for a minute. Next thing you know, I knocked him out. So I figured it was my time to leave. I have had these nights before, and with me, you don't know what else is in store. So I said goodbyes and headed down the stairs. Next thing you know, this big Mexican gets in my face and we squash the beef. Well, all of a sudden, the white guy comes back and creeps. I said, what do you want more? I already knocked you to the floor. He said, that wasn't me, it was my brother. Now I am thinking, here we go again. So I start throwing punches. I hit everyone I can. Then I feel like I am being bum-rushed, so I grabbed a microphone stand. I ended up clocking the Arabic in the head, damn near filleted his head. So, all chaos breaks loose and all I can think about is freeing the juice, so I jump through the fence. Grab a hoodie hanging on the fence, threw it on, and hopped a few more fences. Next thing I know, these cops are walking with two kids. Little did I know, they were looking for me. The cop pointed his flashlight and said, Hey you! I thought to myself, Oh shit, what do I do? So, I began running south. Every set of stairs, three more heads popped out. Not to brag, but I was fast. There was no way they were catching me. I finally had about 25 or so following behind me. Next thing I know, there is a car pulling up on the beach. It came so close to hitting me, yet I kept running like a worker bee. They jumped out of the car and got on the loudspeaker and said they were going to be releasing the dog. I thought for a quick second. I was half naked, and if that dog gets me, it will really hurt. Plus, if I kill it, I am fucked. So, I laid down and waited. Next thing I know, I'm in the back of a cop car. We made a deal. They get one question, and I get one question. They asked me if it was the first time running from them, and of course it wasn't. I said, actually, I ran from you specifically last week and I hopped the fence. He said, I thought that was you, and I gave him a hard time because he couldn't hop the wall. Now it was my turn to ask the question. Who hit me in the back of the head? He said, me, because he had been running after me since the very beginning. I said, fair enough. Not only does this account give us Cameron's description of the night, but it also lets us peer into his life a little more. Things like how he had run from the police before, and his self-awareness in terms of what he is capable of doing. And the gap at the end of the story between getting hit by the police and ending up in the car shows us how easy it was for Cameron, after years of brain injuries, to lose consciousness and become disoriented. So was he tried as a hate crime then, ultimately? He was. It was. He was tried as a hate crime. It was tried as a hate crime. And the guy didn't even press charges. He, said, he, he was up on stage. Cameron had the microphone. He was saying a bunch of stuff about 9-11 and, and, and he, he wanted to be a fireman and da-da-da. And then they started charging the stage to get the microphone back and he swung the microphone and it hit this kid. But then... I told Bill, I said, Bill, this is on you. I'm not doing this. I'm not going up there. You're going to go up there. You've got to see what I'm talking about. You've got to go up there and deal with this. 
And we, I mean, I, I got all the letters and we wrote letters and, and, and all that, but I made Bill go up there and sit through the trial and, and, and then we all visited Cameron and of course and all, all that stuff. But that was when Bill finally kind of got it. But then, then as soon as Cameron's out, Cameron's normal again. No, he's not. He's not. He's not. He's, he's, he seems normal. He seems good, but he's not good. Cameron writes, So we finally get to the jail. They give me my clothes and take me to my cell. I'm still thinking I will be out tomorrow. Little did I know. It is now Sunday and the Rams are in the Super Bowl. Just so happens to be my favorite player, Marshall Falk, was on the team. Great way to watch it. I get a visitor. I am wondering who could it be. It is my father and he says to me at first, I wanted to wring your neck until I realized how serious this would be. For real, we are talking on a phone through a glass, some shit you would see on TV. Man, was I glad to see my dad there for me. I told them about the money in my car and to get me a lawyer. So they did. They got me Sam No Eaton Jr., a Jew who was one of the best. It took me a number of times to go to court before anything was figured out. I fought my battle for four months before I was sentenced on my grandma's birthday, June 16th. Did you know I had the oldest judge to make a ruling, 72 years old. Good thing he was a William and gave me a second chance due to my age and didn't feel my life would become any better in a cage. At 19 years old, Cameron pleaded no contest, and Santa Barbara Superior Court Judge William Gordon sentenced Cameron to one year in jail and three years probation and told him never to drink alcohol ever again. The judge let him know that he went easy on him due to his age because he could have been sentenced to a much harsher sentence in federal prison. After jail, Cameron made multiple attempts to turn his life around. He worked multiple jobs, but he describes hating them because he knew he could make more money with less effort selling drugs around his hometown. Then, in 2008, three years before Cameron disappears, he shows up to his sister Chelsea's baby shower, and things go terribly wrong. He was drinking a lot on the beach, and he... he, um he was he just was getting a little bit too rowdy. He was with the girl he just met on the beach and and anyway he had I wasn't there, so I don't know Chelsea's story is her story because I wasn't there, but I know I know it was he was getting out of hand. He tried to hit Chelsea and um her husband Eli and his brother chris stood in and and tried to get him some help and get him calmed down, helping him themselves, and then took him to his apartment in Del Mar and um, stayed with him. And after that, um, I think he did everything he possibly could to make that up to her, but it, it's something that she won't let go of, and I don't blame her at all. When Valerie says that Cameron did everything possible to make that up to her, what she means is that Chelsea, his sister, had called in a favor from a friend, 
a counselor or mediator to help them work through their problems. According to accounts by Chelsea, though, these visits embarrassed her more than anything because Cameron seemed unwilling to participate and acted, for the most part, disinterested in the three of them working together to solve their problems. This created an enormous rift between the two of them. Then, two years later, in 2010, a year before Cameron disappears, he randomly shows up at Chelsea's house, something that was odd considering their relationship was strained since the incident on the beach. Chelsea writes about her experience that day in a blog. Jordan reads, I never forgave my brother. In May of 2010, he showed up at my house. This was highly unusual. In fact, we had since moved, and he had never been to my house since we were barely on speaking terms. His behavior was incredibly erratic, and he was talking really rapidly and focused on one topic and one topic only, this business venture he was excited about. Something wasn't right. I tried to change the subject, but he would go right back to it. Once we headed to the living room from the kitchen, he was still talking about it from a chair, and I was on the couch with my husband. Then Cameron got up intensely and sat down right next to me in an aggressive manner, going on and on about this mulch, a type of soil he was going to make millions selling. My husband and I were having flashbacks to the baby shower incident, and my husband at that point asked him to calm down. During this time, I was pregnant with twins and said I was tired and needed to go to bed so we could get him to leave. We were in shock. We kept asking over and over again, what was that? That question she asks at the end, what was that? It's one I've asked myself over and over for the past couple months. And it is the perfect question in response to Cameron's behavior in the years leading up to his disappearance in San Francisco. It was a few months before he went missing. Um, he had gone down to the Belly Up Barn locally and listened to some music. And he was flirting with a girl who, and it turned out, had a boyfriend. So when he, he left the bar, this is what the cab driver told me. The guy clocked Cameron so hard that Cameron didn't know who he is. All he could remember was our address. That's all he could remember. And he got here, and Cameron was saying that cab driver hit him in the head, and the cab driver stole, stole his money. I said, no, no, he didn't, Cameron. Come on inside. So he didn't know who he knew. He, he knew I was his mom. He knew he, he, knew he was home, but he, he had no clue as to what happened to him. Despite Cameron's run-ins with the law and occasional violent outbursts, he had, for the most part, adopted his bouts of mania into what someone might call character development. He gets manic, so he gets, he's always been kind of high-strung and kind of hyper, um, and always a lot of energy, that kind of thing. But um, he definitely, he would start wearing two different shoes. He would start talking in rhymes. He would build, like, shrines like at his house where, you know, in his mind, clearly it made sense, but it would have everything from like money and needles and statues and shoes and just all kinds of just random stuff put together and like set up in some kind of like, like a statue type thing. He wouldn't sleep. He wouldn't eat. So, I mean, it was definitely, you know, and that was, at, you know, obviously at its worst. 
So he would definitely get into that manic state for sure. There were other things too, including what his family and friends describe as a, quote, fascination or obsession with homeless people and life on the streets. He had no problem walking right up to homeless people and engaging in conversations with them for hours at a time. That's just him. I mean, that's just how he was. He was like, he he could talk to anybody. I mean, he he was really interested in people, in art especially. He just loved people. Brittany said the day I met her. Brittany was Cameron's live-in girlfriend at the time of his disappearance. Cameron brought her here and he went in the bathroom and I, because they were talking about he was throwing money out of his car in downtown San Diego to the homeless people, throwing cash out of his car. And I said, I said to Brittany, I said, do you feel safe with Cameron right now? Is he okay? Is he, you know, because I don't, you know, I knew he was bipolar and I knew he wasn't taking his meds. And then she said, oh yeah, yeah, it's all fine. He's fine. He's been fine. He, he's just throwing money away because that's not normal behavior. I, I mean, throwing it out of your car to homeless people isn't, I don't know. I just thought that was strange. So I said, Cameron, let's go talk. You and I, let's go talk. So we went in his room which is his really when he grew up here. And um, we had a, a long talk, and he was crying a lot of it. He he was crying. So I said, you need to take your medicine. And he felt that marijuana was helping him. And I said, well, this doesn't look like it's helping you. You need to take your actual medicine. But it slows him down, and he doesn't like to be slowed down. Leah echoed the reports that Cameron refused to take his medication to help with his bouts of mania and depression. And was he taking medicine or seeing anybody to help him through this? Yeah, so there had been a a few times that he had been, um, you know, put away into a into a ward of some sort, and he would get on medication. Um, I think previous to this one. It was a few months prior to that, and he he didn't like the medication, though. I don't think most people who have this disorder do. Um, you know, they feel very slow and sluggish. They don't feel like themselves. They feel like they're being controlled. So I know that he did have a tendency to stop taking it at points. Despite the lack of medication, Cameron thrived on his mania and eccentric behavior. Every person I spoke to told me about some different business venture he was going to start, and he always insisted, whatever the idea be, that it was going to make him a millionaire. His recent venture, one he undertook shortly prior to his trip to San Francisco, was a medical marijuana dispensary in Oceanside, California. He was purchasing half of the business with his father and a business partner named Zach from a pair of notorious twin brothers in the Southern California drug scene. Do you know what kind of impact Cameron's mental illness may have had on his business? I'm wondering what sort of challenges that may have may have posed for him. For him to be out into another world, um, a business world and a, you know, let's face it, a drug world in a manic state that's not making sense, I'm sure it wasn't good. And I'm sure he probably... Sure, he wasn't taken seriously, or maybe he was taken advantage of. I can't really say. After the break, 
We will explore Cameron's actions in the months prior to his disappearance, as well as begin our investigation into his fateful trip to San Francisco. Stay tuned. We would like to thank Casper for supporting Thin Air Podcast. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the cost. A Casper mattress's breathable design keeps you cool, helping you to regulate your temperature through the night. Casper is constantly innovating sleep research products and services. Casper is a sleep brand that created one perfect mattress sold directly to consumers, eliminating commission-driven inflated prices. Its award-winning sleep surface was developed in-house, has a sleek design, and is delivered to you in a small, compact box delivered right to your doorstep. You can buy it easily online and completely risk-free with free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada. Save an additional $50 toward your mattress purchase by going to casper.com thinair and entering the promo code THINAIR. Again, that's casper.com slash thinair and promo code thinair. Terms and conditions apply. Medical marijuana had been the status quo for California since about 1996, and the prospect of eventual legalization made California an attraction to individuals looking to make money buying and selling legal medical marijuana. Cameron was one of those people. In fact, this new business venture was the reason Cameron was to travel to San Francisco that last week in September of 2011 when he goes missing. According to witness reports, Brittany, Cameron's girlfriend who we heard about earlier, was asked to book his flight from San Diego to San Francisco. He was set to leave September 28th and return September 30th. Cameron arrives in San Francisco on September 28th, and what happens over the course of the next week or so is largely pieced together from eyewitness testimony and newspaper articles. So can you tell me a little bit more about why Cameron was in San Francisco? So he was involved in um, the, which is crazy because now they're so popular, but um, vaporized pens for smoking marijuana. So he, um, I think, had a business partner too and was into that. He also had some business down here with, a uh, dispensary and so he was in he was involved in that business definitely in the marijuana trade I believe that there was a trade show up there and he was going up there again for the vape pen the vapor the vape smoking pen again we don't know if it was to embark on new business to you know that's kind of where everything gets a little fuzzy The events of Cameron's trip are sparse, or fuzzy, as Leah describes. We have few verified reports of what happened. We know he met a woman named Adrian at a bluegrass festival shortly after his arrival. When I finally get a hold of Cameron's phone records, I can see that they were in contact frequently in the five days before Cameron goes missing. We know that he and Adrian hung out every day and that he met with two business partners while visiting San Francisco, a man named Archie and a man named Caleb, whose last names we have omitted to protect their privacy. I want to pause for a brief aside. 
This story has a lot of players, and I know it's sometimes hard to keep track of a story when there are a lot of characters. You can find a character chart on our website, thinairpodcast.com, as well as a timeline of events. It is said that Cameron stayed with Archie upon his arrival to the Bay Area, and that Cameron supposedly purchased around 700 vaporizer pens and THC cartridges from Archie for somewhere between thirty dollars and $40,000. Cameron was set to return from San Francisco on September 30th, and then he was going to travel to Arizona to meet a friend of his by the name of Willie, who owned a dispensary and of whom he had spent a few days with during the early part of his stay in San Francisco. However, instead of returning on the 30th as planned, Cameron continued to delay his trip home every single day, and each day that passed, he stayed at a different hotel than he did the day before. Finally, on October 5th, one of the men Cameron was doing business with in San Francisco, Caleb, offered to put him up for one night in the Fairmont Hotel, one of the most iconic and expensive hotels in San Francisco. I have no idea why Caleb decided to pay for him to stay there when there were plenty of other inexpensive hotels in the area. When Cameron checked out of the Fairmont the afternoon of October 6th, he left his baggage with the bellboy, which contained the vape pens and THC cartridges, and then he left to have dinner with Caleb. Cameron meets Caleb for dinner at a diner where he tells Cameron that he doesn't want to buy the product from him and that he's not going to go with him to Arizona. Around 7 or 7.30, Cameron leaves the diner angry. Caleb offers to pay for a cab back to the Fairmont. Cameron declines. In an interview with investigators, Caleb says that he told Cameron to call him when he got back to San Francisco and that he never heard from Cameron ever again. Cameron, after dinner, he went back to the Fairmont. He went to the Tonga Bar. And so he w- Cameron was talking to people in the bar. He's, like, really outgoing. He He's super intelligent and super outgoing and just very friendly. And and um, But he is bipolar. He, uh, it didn't sound like he was in manic, in any kind of manic stage at that point. And he was just kind of talking to the people in the bar and the bar people I spoke to um, one of the bartenders and after the fact of trying to find out what happened um, he said that they had asked him to leave the hotel and he was kind of bothering the people in the bar so he went he got up and he left and he went in someone in the hall and then a security, a few people, security people, maybe three, according to one of the security guys I spoke to at the time. They were very cooperative, actually, with me about telling me what happened. Cameron kind of ran from them, and then, then they stopped, and he, Cameron just went ahead and just left the hotel, but he didn't take any of his belongings with him. He had no money on him. He had not didn't have his backpack. I don't know if... He did have a phone with him because he had called Willie and told Willie that he, if he could get him some money, he needed a place to stay for that night. 
During Cameron's stay at the Tonga bar, the bellboy reported to investigators that Cameron kept stepping outside to smoke a cigarette and talk to him. And the reason he remembers is because Cameron was wearing two different shoes and talking erratically. The Fairmont Hotel also claimed at the time that Cameron was making some of the patrons at the bar feel uncomfortable. And when they found him skipping through the halls of the hotel, they asked him to leave for good. Around 11 p.m., he was kicked out of the Fairmont Hotel. I actually spoke to Cameron about 1 o'clock on the 6th. And um, the 6th is also um, his one of his favorite people in the whole world, which is his brother's wife, Kim's birthday. Um, so he, he also was excited because he was staying at the Fairmont Hotel. He was telling me on the phone and asked if it wasn't that the place where his older brother had gotten married and had the reception. And I said, yes, that, that's correct. And um, he was real excited about being there. And um, he, didn't, he sounded really happy and, and busy, and he was going to call me back. Um, he had, had to go. So there was a brief conversation. But what happened after that uh, wasn't on that date. It was a few days, I believe, a few days later. Brittany came to our house and was very upset. Cameron was supposed to have come back on a Saturday, and Brittany was afraid something bad had happened to Cameron. So I called and checked with um, his brother, Chris, and his, I, the other, my other son, Curtis, and my daughter, Chelsea, and um, to see if they'd heard from him. Uh, Nobody would heard from him. So Chris filed the missing persons report um, on uh, 10-12-2011. There is almost a week gap between the last reported sighting of Cameron Remmer and the official filing of the police report. And in a city with an astronomical number of missing persons reports each year, it didn't seem like there was going to be any answers anytime soon about what happened to Cameron. Immediately, his friends and family took to social media and traveled to San Francisco to become their own detectives. Can you tell me about the day he goes missing, what you do remember, or like how you found out he was missing? Honestly, I didn't find out for a couple of days. Again, like, you know, I think I had texted him a week before something. I was out getting sushi and just thought of him and he never got he never got back to me and I didn't think anything of it. But I was actually at work and had seen some something on Facebook and uh, my sister's best friend contacted me. He was like, have you heard anything about Cameron? And I was just kind of like, what do you mean? I, I don't even know what you're talking about. And she's like, oh, apparently he went missing. So I didn't even know about it at first. And then I called, I think I called his brother and found out that no one had talked to him. And so the more and more, you know, I, I started like reaching out to friends on Facebook, you know, if anyone's seen him or talked to him, his family hasn't talked to him, please let us know. And I think, so this was probably, I want to say on like the 10th or 11th that I found this out that no one had spoken to him since the 6th. And so then once I spoke with his family and, and no one had talked to him and everyone was kind of 
really concerned, I just decided that I needed to go to San Francisco and look for him. I had <laughs> kind of foolishly, I guess, but I just knew. And so I, I let people know that I was going to go up there. And I took my best friend from L.A. who had who had met him a few times and another friend from Carlsbad who grew up with him and lived with him when he lived in Santa Barbara at one time. And us three just hit the road on a Friday night and we drove up there in the middle. We went, we left at like six or seven at night and got there at three in the morning, slept for two hours and then hit the pavement. That's just kind of how we reacted. And what were you guys able to accomplish in that time or, or what, what was that like? Probably blindly or foolishly. We didn't really know. We just figured that from, you know, what we had heard, we knew he stayed at the Fairmont or the Philmont um, hotel and, we also knew that the Occupy movement was really strong and just starting up. And so they had the um, the Occupy movement going on in San Francisco and Oakland. So I went up there with like maybe a couple hundred flyers and we just started walking. And we probably walked 25 miles that first day and we just walked everywhere that we could. And we ended up having to go to Kinko's multiple times and make, you know, hundreds and hundreds of more. And we went to the Tenderloin and we checked all the shelters and the homeless shelters and we talked to them. But um, a lot of them can't really give out information, but they let us hang our flyers there. Uh, we, you know, we went up to smoke shops. A couple of people thought that they had seen him. They said that they had seen him. So that was like a positive lead that we thought at one point. The case of Cameron Remmer eventually gets assigned to a detective by the name of Joe Carroll. Depending on who you talk to, Joe Carroll either did all he could for Cameron and his case, or he didn't care at all. Assuming the former... We do know that Joe contacted some of the people involved in the case, but left most of it up to the family and friends. And then, around Halloween, a break. Someone sees Cameron at Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco, sleeping on a bench. They call and report it immediately. Within minutes, police respond. They ask the man whether or not he is Cameron, and he tells them he is indeed Cameron Remmer. Joe called me and said we found Cameron. So we were all at my daughter's house um, celebrating the fact that they found Cameron. And we were relieved. And I, uh, Joe said that Cameron was being taken over to the psych ward to be evaluated by um, a doctor. I called the doctor and he, he said, yes, Cameron's here, but I can't let you talk to him until after I've evaluated him. That was earlier in the day before the Halloween thing. And then um, I'll call you later and then you'll be able to talk to him. And I said, okay, great. Valerie leaves to take her grandchildren trick-or-treating. When she returns, the doctor calls her back to inform her about Cameron's situation. Took him, started to take them trick-or-treating and my phone rang and it was this doctor and he said, I have really bad news for you. And so I said, Cameron's dead? And he said, no, no, it's not Cameron. And so it was not Cameron. So the Chronicle... Um, I printed a story, and some of the relatives, some of them complained about the Chronicle, about the police not doing their job and not, you know, giving us false hope. And so what came out for a while there was people said, well, he's been found. And I said, no, he has not been found. That was a mistake. It was not Cameron.
As we've seen in so many cases we've covered, as time went by, the investigation lagged. Joe Carroll eventually resigned, and the case was reassigned to a woman by the name of Anne McKenzie. Shortly after that, she resigned. The current investigator is listed as someone by the name of Sylvia Morrow, although I can find no record of her currently working for SFPD. As I hung up the phone with both Valerie and Leah, and after sifting through all of the mostly inaccurate news articles about Cameron's case, I knew there was much, much more to investigate. Leads that detectives either never cared or didn't have the time to follow up on. My attack was twofold. Find out more about Cameron and reconstruct exactly what happened in the days before his disappearance. If I could do that, then maybe, just maybe, I could find out what happened to Cameron the night of October 6th, 2011. Armed with Cameron's telephone records, I started with Adrian, the woman he spent the week prior to his disappearance with, and called her, hoping that, after five years, her number would somehow be the same. Hello, is this Adrian? Yeah, this is her. On the season finale of Thin Air, we speak to Adrian and SFPD about Cameron's disappearance, and I try to get a hold of anyone who might have spoken to Cameron in the days before his disappearance. And, as I begin to dig deeper into Cameron's story, I uncover a cryptic message connected to the Freemasons, a number of hidden safe deposit boxes, and a mysterious phone call to Cameron from a world-renowned physicist who was giving a lecture in San Francisco during the time Cameron disappeared. I'd like to thank Cameron's mom, Valerie, and his friend, Leah, for speaking to me about Cameron. If you have any information about where Cameron might be, or you believe you have seen him, please contact SFPD's Missing Persons Unit, or send us an email at thinairpodcast at gmail.com, and we will pass the tip along for you. Feel free to discuss this case via social media using the tag Cameron Remmer. His last name is spelled R-E-M-M-E-R. If you want to follow us on social media, please find us on Twitter at Thin Air Podcast or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Thin Air Podcast. If you want to help support our podcast and invest in future investigations, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Thin Air Podcast. Lastly, I'd like to thank our assistant producer, Nate Halda, as well as Blue Dot Sessions for providing the music for this week's episode. We'll be back in two weeks. Mm-hmm.